This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to what I believe is the last installment of the Responding to the Cessationism documentary. In this video, we're going to be responding to a few claims about the gift of tongues and a few claims about the gift of healing. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a show where we tackle history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. My name is Joshua Lewis. I'm the pastor of King's Fellowship in Ada, Oklahoma, together with my friends Michael Miller at Reclamation Church Denver and Michael Roundtree at Bridgeway Church OKC. We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. Well, I'm very excited to share our program with you today on the cessationist documentary, responding to the cessationist documentary. As always, we believe the cessationists are our brothers. We love them because they have been bought with the blood of Jesus. We are responding to their arguments. We very much disagree with them uh, because brothers and sisters can be wrong about things, and and we think they are. So that's why we're doing these videos. Uh, We have a series of content that we've been developing, and if you want some of the study notes of uh, contents, video one through five, we have a study guide that we released a place that you can find that is in the description of this video you click the description you can register for the newsletter once you register for that newsletter you'll get a copy of that uh of that response to cessationism which will be really uh, really exciting hope you guys all enjoy the work that we put into that uh i think the three of us outlined a ton of content looking for history theology source material and then christina our admin walked through all of it and footnoted it appropriately she's done a fantastic job super thankful for her and her work on that project uh for the rest of you who are out there watching you might have heard me say this is probably our last video you're like but you haven't done the whole video here's the thing uh prophecy tongues, healing. Those are the primary things that the cessation uh, video goes after. Uh, It talks about the cluster argument, talks about, hey, the gifts ended with the apostles at this period of time, all this other stuff. We've addressed all of the major things in the documentary. So this is probably going to be our last one and nine installments. I mean, for goodness sake, how many do we actually need? So uh, hope that this series has been a blessing to you. And if you've noticed, maybe we're on a little bit later than we usually are. Why, Why are you guys bumping a little bit late? We taped some episodes for the new year and for Christmas season so that we can kind of be with our families. So our last recording just kind of bled over a little bit into this program. So sorry, we're late, but we'll give you a full hour. It'll be exciting. Let me toss it over to Michael and Michael. I I mentioned stuff about cessationism. Does anyone have anything that they want to say kind of dogpiling on that, introducing any of this? Man, Uh, we we, go ahead. Whatever. He put the camera on me. Sorry, Miller. It's just the basement. I heard a syllable from your mouth. So, man, we could have kept going. We, we honestly, we had enough material, but we figured it was probably getting boring. That's really what it amounted to. Uh, so we, we want to at least keep you guys entertained as we talk about theological topics. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to beat a dead horse with the cessationist thing. So uh, 
beat a yeah. dead horse, raise it from the dead, and then beat it to death again because we're charismatics and that's what we do. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Life. Uh, <laughs> Miller. <laughs> he's just Miller's over he's, there. He's laughing so much he can't. He's talk. just muted and laughing. He's just he's just chuckling. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, so let's, uh, but let's close this out. We just, we saw some videos that we've got to watch and review. So you want to introduce this next video, Joshy? Sure. Joshy. Well, we uh, did our last video with Dr. Fred Keener on the gift of tongues. Uh, this is a clip that comes out of that where uh, the cessationists are trying to make the case that the gift of tongues uh, it started during the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, there was this big blunder, which is quite recorded in history. For some reason, they make the claim that like Pentecostals like don't know this about their history. I find it to be entirely untrue. In fact, every person I've interviewed on this subject has talked about how um, Charles Parham and William Seymour believed that you wouldn't need language training, and they sent missionaries out to do evangelism, thinking that if they could speak in tongues, they wouldn't need language training. Um, anyway, so uh, this is a good video. Let's dive into it and watch this clip. A term that comes from two Greek words, glossa, meaning tongue or language, and laleo, meaning to speak. So when we use those terms together, glossolalia is used to refer to tongue speaking or to speaking in tongues. The modern charismatic understanding of the term allows for glossolalia to refer to ecstatic spiritual speech that doesn't conform to any known language. Parham was in the newspaper on multiple occasions talking about how now that the gift of tongues has been restored to the church, no one is going to have to go to language school to learn foreign languages, and we'll be able to send missionaries all around the world without them having to spend years training and learning a foreign language in order to be effective. Of course, they all came back utterly disappointed and dejected when they realized that what they were doing in terms of their modern glossolalia did not communicate in terms of a foreign language with the people they were trying to reach. And so consequently, the Pentecostal movement had to change its understanding of scripture to fit its experience rather than acknowledging that its experience did not fit the clear teaching of scripture. You don't find the notion that tongue speaking in the Bible is anything other than real human languages until you get to the modern charismatic movement. The modern charismatic movement has invented a new kind of tongues because the tongues that they practice don't match what the scripture reveals as the real gift of tongues. And as a result, they had to broaden the biblical category to make room for their experience. Interesting arguments, guys. It is really the reason that we believe and preach about the tongues that we believe and preach today is because of a historical event, because of an experience. It has nothing to do with the Bible. What say you guys? That's probably true of Miller. Miller, you're still muted. Miller, that's true of you, right? What's true of me? That uh, you believe in tongues because of your experience, not the Bible. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, no, I started believing in tongues before I actually started speaking in tongues. However, speaking in tongues has certainly helped affirm what I already believed in Scripture, which I actually think that's what the gifts should do. They should affirm what you already believe to be true in Scripture. Uh, and if they don't, then there's something off in your practice of gifts, not the Scriptures. Um, but man, this is, he's really reaching here. One, Josh, you already proved the fact that they thought that you need to learn languages. However, there probably were some there was some truth to that. I've, I, I can't remember the book I read on this about the number of Pentecostal missionaries that went out because of this. One of the things I think that, that they failed well, to documented. mention is how, yeah, well, again, one of the things I think they failed to mention, though, is how the Pentecostal movement became the fastest growing worldwide uh, denomination on the earth, largely because they felt like they were empowered for ministry, uh, which is interesting because that's what Jesus says, go and wait in Jerusalem so that you'd be baptized with spirit and power, right? Like that's the, the, the point of that. Um, 
So uh, regarding his idea about the gift of tongues being known human languages, uh, prove it. Uh, we actually have Paul saying flat out in 1 Corinthians 14, verse, uh, what is it? Two says, for the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God, for no one understands. He's speaking mysteries by the Spirit. Well, we have a pretty explicit scripture right there that seems to imply that people could be speaking a language that nobody understands because it says no one understands. Now, the question in my mind is, does that mean no one on the earth or no one through history? Does the language itself have no actual meaning, or is it that it has no meaning to those who are around that person? And I tend to lean towards the second of the two. Um, it, it, I think it has meaning. There's no language without meaning, but who it's meaningful to is the question. And uh, the question is whether it's meaningful to God or some other person on the earth or some other person through history. We're just not told in Scripture. And so to, to uh, pigeonhole um, uh the view of tongues into that small confined space is not one the Bible actually uh, explicitly states. He doesn't have a text to state that. Yeah, that's right. And there's a couple of reasons the charismatic will say uh, the gift of tongues can be an unknown speech. Uh, one of the arguments is what you said in 1 Corinthians 14 too. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks to, to not to man, but to God, right? And he prays mysteries. His mind is unfruitful is what is being said. Uh, but then additionally, later on, we see that there is a gift of interpretation uh, that is to be exercised in the body of Christ. Why would there need to be a gift of interpretation if this was a known human language? Uh, it appears as if the, the cessationists would say tongues is always known human languages and God would only give you known human languages when people were present who'd be able to understand that language. Well, then what's the purpose of the gift of interpretation? That seems to be a natural gift that you can acquire through education and training, not a supernatural gift that is, again, bestowed by God and God alone. So uh, there's a couple of arguments here that are biblical arguments for why the gift of tongues would have two separate kind of applications, a tongue speech that could be understood by, let's say, Miller's praying in tongues and a Portuguese person hears him speaking in his own known language. He'd go, okay, that makes sense to me. Or another party who doesn't speak Portuguese gets a supernatural revelation of what is being said. Um, in both accounts, it could be an unknown language or a known human language. Now, they go on to, to make the case about tongues of men and of angels a little bit later, and, and we'll, we'll engage with that argument as it comes up. Um, but another thing that I think is important is that he's making the argument that because this is an anomaly in church history uh, and, and not explicitly in the scriptures, uh, we shouldn't believe it. But I also happen to know that this gentleman is a credo-baptist. And I could make the argumentation that credo-baptism is not necessarily the norm of church history, uh, but it is part of a tradition that comes up later in the church. Also, I'd make the argumentation to say that I would imagine that this this pastor, Nathan, um, uh, I'm familiar with his tradition, uh, would also make the argumentation that pastors are the ones who lead the church. And yet, pastors only mentioned in the Bible Bible one time. We have elders and deacons who govern the offices and affairs of the church, but it's his tradition that has him labeling things as pastor. So, so to suggest that, well, you know, because this is new and novel, therefore we shouldn't do it. I would just say every single tradition of theology isn't created in a vacuum where we all just kind of, you know, came to an understanding of scripture, but it's part of our experience and our tradition that these things begin to emerge. Now, um, th that's not an, a rock solid argument. That's really more of a tertiary argument. I think the scriptures and the scriptures alone are where I'm getting my theology, not necessarily from my experience, but I will concede the ground that there are moments in time where we 
you know, kind of re-earth or re-understand certain uh, aspects of Christian scripture, such as Martin Luther's revelation of grace by faith alone. Uh, It's not as if he invented that doctrine. He just understood it from the scriptures, from an experience, a revelatory moment probably sitting on the can, uh, n- neither here nor there. Uh, but, but those kinds of things, uh, it's part of church history, speculative of that's, if that's actually where he had the revelation of grace through faith alone, but that's a tangent. Um, anyway, all that to say that all of these things are not created in a vacuum. They are often coming from a specific moment in Christian history. Uh, Roundtree, do you have something that you want to add to these rants? Oh, I mean, I think exegetically, a case can be made for tongue speech not being human languages, but being some kind of heavenly languages. I mean, there is an exegetical case, and I think that it's quite strong. Uh, I think we can also say, like, you know what? Maybe they are earthly languages or something. Like, I think that we just need to have a theological humility about us. And that's where, like, you know, where he's saying things like, this is the clear teaching of the Bible. Uh, I would say, actually, no, it's it's not so crystal clear. They do appear to be human languages in Acts 2. And had I never heard of anyone speaking in tongues, and all I had was 1 Corinthians 14, I would I think that I would come to the conclusion that this was speaking of some other kind of tongue, like maybe heavenly or angelic or something like that, because it says that this is a language only understood between God and man, and uh, requiring someone with a spiritual gift of interpretation, not just somebody from a nationality uh, who happens to speak that other language, as we see in Acts chapter 2. So I think that a strong exegetical case can be made the other way from him, and he lacks the theological humility to acknowledge that. And so that's what I think is the bothersome thing about his uh, tirade, if you will. Well, let's just be honest. They just don't like to get the tongues at the end of the day. They just don't like it. And so they're going to explain it away however they can, because they're already starting off with the premise that tongues doesn't happen today. Um, and that's yeah. it. And so yeah. it's not and, us changing and, the meaning of scripture. It's actually them to begin with, with cessationism, which is a non-biblical doctrine. Right. And let's yeah. also not, not pretend that like tongues like disappeared in the first century and came back with Charles Parham. And there was like nothing in between. Go read Sam Storm's book, The Languages, uh, Language of Heaven. And he walks through all of church history instances of people uh, recording tongue speech or something like it, uh, or just tongue speech. And so uh, the reason I say something like it, there is one passage from Augustine that sounds like he's talking about tongues, but he calls it jubilation. So it's kind of weird. Maybe it's tongues, maybe it's not. Uh, But then other uh, passages, uh, uh, other just, I don't know, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Just sections of church history. Recordings. Um, There you go. Recordings in church history. Uh, where where tongue speech did not disappear entirely. And so, uh, but you know what, guys, even if like it did for a little bit, like even if tongues was sparse in church history, that would not prove the cessation of it because in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 3, 1, visions were rare in those days. Even if we could say this, visions didn't go away. They were just rare in those days. Why? Because Israel's under a time of judgment. So we shouldn't be surprised if when, uh, like the entire gospel was lost by the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church for a season of history. We shouldn't be surprised that along with the gospel, they lost some other things too, uh, like the gift of tongues. So uh, I have no problem saying tongues was rare in those days, but there are instances in church history, and, and we should have the humility to acknowledge that and uh, the willingness to research that before we make bold claims. Yeah. 
yeah, there's there's a, a lot here, and let's walk through some of those just as a recap for people who are just now tuning in. Uh, tongues is not always known human languages. A couple arguments for that can be um, there's no interpreter with Cornelius, right? So we don't know what language that they're speaking in, only that they're speaking in another language. We have 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 2. You're speaking to, to God, not to man. Uh, you have the accounts in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 14 that give you uh, both a description of the gift of interpretation and the need for an interpreter. Um, uh, and Paul, who says, I speak in tongues more than you all, but I would still rather speak to you in a known human language that you can understand that would edify you, build you up, and encourage you. All of those seem to point to the fact that this could be an unknown human language or maybe a human language that's not known at that time or to that immediate audience. Um, I still think it's open for interpretation to say that, you know, maybe every form of tongues is a known human language, but a known human language that isn't present at that time. Part of the argument from the cessationist is, well, you know, the Babylonians were going to come and conquer Israel, and that would be an unknown tongue, so it would have been gibberish and a sign of judgment unto them. We're just saying, yeah, so maybe all tongues is a known human language, but a known human language that's not known maybe within our time, like maybe it's an old human language, or maybe uh, it's it's a, a a language that's maybe not present within uh, that current co- congregation. Like maybe it is Portuguese, but there's no Portuguese speaker present. It would merely sound like gibberish. So uh, I think the argumentation stands on its own. I think it's biblical. Um, do you, you guys want to dive into the next video? Yep. Uh, is that a yes or no? Yeah, yeah let's do it. Okay, cool. Jump in. Cool. Uh, after we do the history of tongues, let's do Jesus didn't pray in tongues. But I read in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit speaks with groanings that are too deep for words. Maybe that verse is what is meant by this, I feel this overwhelming urge from the Spirit to utter something, and that's what comes out. There is no given permission in Scripture to speak some gibberish nonsense that no one is going to understand. But think about what Jesus said when he taught us how to pray. In Matthew 6, 7, he said, don't heap up empty phrases like the pagans do. And then he says, pray then like this. And Jesus taught us to pray clear prayers. He was never praying anything that was some otherly language. And if there was anyone who was going to pray in such a language, it would certainly be the one who was sent down from heaven, Christ himself. Interesting. Is Matthew 6 telling us not to speak in tongues? Is the fact that Jesus never spoke in tongues evidence that we shouldn't speak in tongues? These seem like bad arguments. There is no record that Jesus spoke in tongues. And yet there's a record that Peter spoke in tongues. His argument is, well, if anyone was going to do it, it better be the son of God. That doesn't even work with your understanding of the gift of tongues. Like, why is that even an argument that's being stated? It's self-contradictory. Yeah, he's totally failing to recognize the polemical aspect of tongues as it was in Acts chapter 2. This is a reversal of Babel. Um, So the Tower of Babel event hadn't been reversed because the the new covenant hadn't been made available for all flesh. So the idea that, that other nations would be coming in that hadn't happened yet, not until after Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and poured out the Spirit, and thereby giving the baptism of the Spirit to unite all flesh, right? For by one Spirit, we have all been baptized into one body, as First Corinthians 12, 13 says. So it's like he's just completely throwing away the polemic nature of why tongues was given in Acts chapter 2, as opposed to... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I just it, it makes no sense to say that uh, he's just 
chopping in whatever verse of scripture he can get to fit his argument. Well, also, yeah, uh, he, he's making the argument that Jesus should have been able, if you can do this, if Michael Miller is able to speak in tongues, Jesus should have been able to speak in tongues. The problem with this argument is Peter spoke in tongues and Jesus didn't speak in tongues. Like, even, even if you want to take the category of like real tongues and fake tongues, well, your tongues is fake and Jesus didn't do that. Therefore, what you're doing is not real. Do it with the real one. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, in fact, even the way uh, the book of Acts portrays it, uh, we see Jesus in Acts 1, 9 to 11, ascending into heaven. And then in Acts 2, they hear a, a loud uh, a loud sound coming down, a mighty rushing wind coming down out of heaven. Luke is using geography to say that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit actually comes from Jesus, which is precisely what uh, Peter will explain in his sermon in Acts 2, 29 to 36, that because Jesus has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, he has now poured out which this which you see and hear. He literally explains that the gift of tongues is here in Acts 2 because of Jesus. He gives Jesus the credit who, by virtue of his life, death, resurrection, now ascension, pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. So to say, like, Jesus didn't do it, therefore you shouldn't do it. Well, but Jesus gave the gift of tongues. See, Jesus gave tongues. So maybe you should do it. Uh, I mean, uh, hey, I'm not one of those who thinks every Christian can speak it. I, I look at 1 Corinthians 12, do all, are all apostles or all prophets or uh, do all speak in tongues is one of the questions he asked. And the implied answer is no, but you shouldn't forbid speaking in tongues, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, especially on a terrible argument like this. Um, so also Matthew six, come on, dude. Yeah. Matthew six. Yes. He's teaching the Lord's prayer. I mean, this is just a very different thing. Yes. The Lord's prayer says to pray in this way. Is that the only way we pray? Are we limited to the words that Jesus gave us in the Lord's prayer? Is that what you're trying to communicate? We're not limited to the words, nor are we limited to the language of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a model of how we should typically pray. But Paul also says, I'm glad I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words. Well, if he's glad he'd speak in tongues, but not in a public place, well, what is that? It's prayer. That's why we call it, this is why, like informally, we might use the, we might say it's a prayer language because he says, he who speaks in a tongue speaks between himself and to God, not in a public assembly. He speaks in tongues more than everybody else. So the apostle Paul prayed in tongues. So well, I'm going to go with, I mean, if Paul did it, it's probably a good thing to do. You probably should. Yeah. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So maybe, uh, maybe you should speak in tongues. You know, I will say this on Romans 8. I agree with him. That's not about the gift of tongues. Wherever it talks about okay. like groaning. I'm on the same page. Um, we all agree. But, but that's not like every charismatic believes that's about tongues. I think it's an overreach and a grasp to suggest that that is about tongues. So I can't say that I agree with him there. Uh, but on the other stuff, it's just, it's really bad argumentation. And it's actually, it's discouraging that that sort of argument actually made it into a documentary. Like it says something about like the person who made this documentary and thought this was a good enough argument to air. Like I can imagine like you got the camera rolling, you're filming some guy and he makes like just a really bad argument. You're like, eh, this, this, this charismatics are going to tear this one up. Let's, let's not put that one in. But you went ahead and threw that argument in. I'm kind of like, man. Well, Michael, it, he, really he brought up one. Matthew six to say that when you stand in the marketplace, right, you're not to lift up 
like repetitious and big lofty prayers so that you may be seen. He uses that verse to say, well, this is clearly saying that God wants us to not pray these big long winded prayers uh, of tongues right? Uh, but to but to pray in such a way that's intelligible. That's not what Matthew 6 is about. It's not about intelligibility and unintelligibility. In fact, it's the intelligible words that are like highly lofty that are there to impress others, whereas the gift of tongues, if it's to be practiced biblically, is probably one that is done personally, privately, unless accompanied by interpretation, which again, I, I think that we're broad brushing here when we're talking about the charismatic movement he'll play you know sam storms and he'll play john piper and then he'll say and then we go into these large rooms and everyone speaks in tongues none of them do that the the charismatics that they they highlight in this documentary and they say that well you know they're all basically the same it's so absurd in fact the, the Pentecostal charismatic movement, there are there are certainly groups amongst them who will say, hey, everyone, let's build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Let's all pray right now in, in tongues. And, and there is babbling that takes place and, the, and their unbelievers are present going, what's going on here? Uh, we don't we don't see the whole fruitfulness of that. We would condemn that. We would we would as a community say, hey, that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. If there is a gift of tongues, there ought to be an interpretation that goes along and accompanies along with it. Uh, But to make the argument that Matthew six is somehow pointing us to tongues is a horrible misuse of the text of Scripture. Uh, That has to do with Pharisees wanting to be puffed up by their intellect and and to be puffed up and to be seen in the public square. If tongues is, uh, is practiced appropriately, it's the exact opposite of that. The, the verse he's quoting is actually not the one you're referring to, although that's in the exact same passage. He's talking about how the Gentiles pray with repetition. Um, and he's saying that basically that's what tongues is. It's just a bunch of guys uttering a bunch of stuff that's in repetition, which Jesus told us not to do in Matthew 6, like the Gentiles. So I don't think he's referring necessarily to the Pharisees, but but in either case, the, the argument doesn't work. Um, we're People speaking in tongues, they're not are, uh, offering up a bunch of repetitious things for no reason. People who pray in tongues are doing so because they want to pray and they often don't know how to. And God himself, you know, sees the the state of mankind and our inability to pray as we should. And though he gave us the Lord's prayer, he's also now also given the gift of tongues so that people can pray um, so they don't feel like they're being repetitious. He, he actually is undercutting the whole purpose of giving the gift of tongues, Yeah, uh, which I don't even think yeah, he understands well, why God gave the, that Miller, gift at all. I think... I don't mean to. I don't want to be too corrective. I think they're all the same text. The Matthew six. It, it is the again, same text. When he says repetition, together. he's not yeah. referring to Pharisees. He's referring to the Gentiles. This is not right. about being seen. It's about repetition. Does yeah. that make sense? It, it's in the same yeah. text. Well, either either way, like we we have to even understand like what is Jesus's issue with repetition? Because praying the same thing over and over again, there's nothing sinful about that. I mean, have you read the Psalms? Like there are some of them that'll be like. Praise the Lord with cymbals. Praise the Lord with tambourines. Praise the Lord, blah, blah, blah. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth, saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. So there's nothing wrong. And that, like this is what is putting into the mouths of his people to pray and uh, and to sing. So there's nothing wrong with repetition. Uh, the, what he's going after is the Gentiles who don't know they have a heavenly father. They think that they have to twist the arms of the gods, so to speak, through through this like repetition. And uh, and he's going after their non-relational approach to God, where they're trying to earn through their like devotion to repeating things in prayer to uh, to get their way. And 
and and he says, no, that's that's not what this is about. This is about a relationship with your heavenly Father. And so, uh, anyway, so it, it's not it it it's a non sequitur. What he says is it does not follow that. Therefore, tongues doesn't work because Matthew six. Like it, if we want to interpret scripture in context, we should understand that this verse had absolutely nothing to do with tongues, and. That's really the point that all of us made on our point from Matthew 6. And it was kind of hard to discern what point he was trying to make from Matthew 6. That's probably why the confusion. Cool. Do you guys want to dump into the next video? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Jesus didn't pray in tongues. The next one uh, is I don't forbid tongues. This is interesting. Paul says not to forbid to speak in tongues, to which I would reply, I've never in my life forbidden anyone to speak in tongues. As far as I know, no Christian pastor has ever forbidden anybody to speak in tongues. However, the verse doesn't say don't forbid people to babble incoherently. I would forbid that, but that's not tongues. Even though it comes out of people's mouths and their tongue is involved, it's not the gift of tongues. And yes, I will forbid counterfeits, but that's just what a faithful minister would do. And that's why there's no room for open but cautious. I had a hard time hearing him all the way up on that high horse. Um, the, only the faithful pastor, you know, sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, when listening to this argument, guys, is it fair to say that no pastor has ever forbidden people to speak in tongues? No. I mean... Uh, yeah, so he, Why the command? I, I will say this, I will say this, that last statement that he said, there's no room for open, but cautious, uh, pastor, we can agree with you on that. When you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, we're saying let's sprint into the spiritual gifts. You know, like the Bible says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Uh, and you're saying you should sprint the other direction or at least with certain spiritual gifts. So, um, yeah, so forbid babbling versus forbid tongues. Miller, um, what what do you think of that of that argument? Is that a fair argument? Well, I think he's I think he's one already judging what he hears as incoherent babbling. Prove it. I mean, how do you know that every person who speaks in tongues who or who claims to is incoherent babbling? Um, at our most recent Remnant Radio conference that we did in Oklahoma, I taught on tongues and interpretation. I actually publicly spoke in tongues. I had a number of people understand me in a couple of various languages. Um, so I, I'm not really sure how you know for sure that all who claim to speak in tongues are just incoherently babbling. I think you're assuming that. And here's the really frustrating part about this is you say, I've never forbidden, forbidden anybody from speaking in tongues, but I forbid incoherent babbling. Well, how do you know that you haven't forbidden speaking in tongues when you claim every tongue is incoherent babbling? You know, by its very nature, you, you see it as incoherent babbling. And so you're actually doing the very same, very thing that you're saying, I've never done this, but maybe you are. And maybe you're actually, because you don't believe in the gift of tongues, even existing today, you're forbidding speaking in tongues because of the way you draw that conclusion. I think the the struggle here is, in some sense, and this is what I say about cessationism as a doctrine, in some very real ways, it is true of them what is also true of the Pharisees, that they are nullifying the word of God by their tradition. And so, and I'm not saying that they nullify all of the word of God, but in their cessationism, they nullify passages of scripture like the one he quotes out of 1 Corinthians 14, do not forbid speaking in tongues. 
he's actually nullifying that verse by his tradition. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, you know, by, by saying, I, one, tongues doesn't exist. Therefore, every uh, expression of it must be fake. Therefore, all fake expressions I am able to condemn bakes the premise into the conclusion. Once again, we see this happening with cessationists quite frequently. It bakes the the the. The, the, the it what is it it bakes the conclusion into the premise of the statement one this gentleman does not know every known human language there's no way so how would he know that he's forbidding or not forbidding tongues if they're always known human languages he wouldn't know uh, so and here's the thing why does the bible tell us not to forbid tongues if no pastor in all of human history has ever done it like just spend a little bit of time thinking about it. It's like saying, don't get drunk with wine. Well, <laughs> no Christian's ever been drunk with wine before. Really? Why is there a command not to get drunk with wine? It doesn't, it's a completely inconsistent and incoherent argument. Michael, yeah. do you have anything to say? Yeah. Um, I, I would also say, I mean, just First Corinthians 14. I mean, I'm just picking it up midway. He's been making the same argument, but for the sake of time, I'll just read part of it. He says, so with yourselves, if, you're, uh, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the one speaker, to the one speaking the speaker, a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestation, strive for ones that build up the church. And he goes on and on about how no one understands tongues. Like it, it's almost like you could just paraphrase First Corinthians 14 to say, like, hey, if you don't have someone who's a gifted interpreter in the room, it's gonna be babble to you. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? Because he's saying he, his exact words are, you'll be a foreigner to that person. Uh, he, his exact word is their language will be unintelligible. Well, that's the same thing. And so what, like to Miller's point, he's prejudging on the front side. If it's babble, if it's unintelligible, it must not be a real tongue. Paul's point is that if it's babble and if it's unintelligible, sounds like a real tongue. Just keep quiet between yourself and, and God unless there's an interpreter in the church. And so you can't prejudge just because it doesn't sound like you think it should sound. Uh, that's, uh, and again, like Josh said, baking the conclusion into the premise, we should expect that it would sound like Babel based on Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 14. Bueno, you guys ready to move to the next one? Yep. Mm-hmm. Let's keep punching through them. That, that one was pretty short, so it's easy to do. Uh, let's do the greatest is love, guys. We don't need tongues because we've got love. Often people will appeal to 1 Corinthians 13, where the Apostle Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, then the practice of speaking in tongues is not suddenly speaking French or suddenly speaking German, but speaking allegedly the tongues of angels. You can literally say whatever you want and justify it. When Paul is speaking of tongues of men and of angels, what he's trying to do is speak in hyperbole or intentional exaggeration for the sake of effect to illustrate the point that even if you have the best and the highest gifts that reach up to heaven itself and you have not love, you have nothing. For example, he says, even if I give my body to be burnt, but I have not love it profits me nothing. Not that you ought to speak in tongues of angels, but that you ought to love one another as Christ has loved you. And that's the stress of the text. It's actually sad and unfortunate 
that while Paul is seeking to direct our attention away from the gifts and to the grace of love, we take one phrase, the tongues of angels, and make it the primary focus of what tongue speaking should look like. I don't know what was a greater exaggeration, the first video or this one, where he says, you know, Paul's trying to point us away from the gifts. He's trying to point us towards love. My guy, that is not what is happening. Uh, in fact, Paul is saying, as you practice spiritual gifts, make sure they're done with love or they're only being done for you. Because the whole point of spiritual gifts is to build up the church. And if you really love the church, you'll practice the gifts in this better way. If you don't have love, your gift is of no effect because the purpose of the gift is to build up the church. He's not trying to get your attention off the gifts. He's trying to get you to use the gifts in a godly way for the edification of saints, not for the building up of your own selfish desires to be seen as someone who's spiritual within the local community. Um, that being yeah. said, Miller, you typically agree with this guy. And I think actually, I think I agree. If I look at the passage, you know, has all knowledge, knows all mystery, speaks in the tongues of men and of angels. It sounds like hyperbole to me. Uh, have you kind of landed on there pretty, pretty confidently? Yeah, no, I, I agree with him. I think Paul is employing hyperbole because he's saying, you know, not just have a few words of knowledge, but I know all mysteries. And, you know, you don't just get, you know, hit across the face, but you actually give your body over to be burned. So he's taking the most powerful forms of all things, the which I think is hyper, hyperbolic, right? And he's saying, if you can't do this with love, it's of no real effect. And so I, I think when he's talking about the tongues of angels there, he's saying, if I don't just speak with the tongues of human tongues, but the tongues of angels, so something far more powerful and great, um, then without love, it's a sounding gong. Uh, so I tend to agree with him. I, I wouldn't exclude the fact that that's a possibility. Uh, no, no uh, less than I would exclude the past that somebody could give their body over to be burned because, in fact, they have. So I do think it's quite possible for those things to take place. Um, but but he's kind of missing the whole point of uh, chapter 13. It's, it's about how to love people with the power of God rather than um, just using power for your own building up. Yeah. Hmm. I think there are probably tongues of angels. I mean, I think he's using hyperbole, but even in using hyperbole, it doesn't mean the thing doesn't exist. Like, for instance, when he says, uh, if I have faith that moves mountains, he's talking about like really tremendous faith. So that it, it's hyperbole. He's talking about extreme faith, but that doesn't mean that that faith doesn't exist. If I have all knowledge, it, it doesn't mean that that knowledge doesn't exist. In the same way, it doesn't mean that tongues of angels don't exist just because he's using hyperbole. Um, now, he here's the thing. I don't think this this debate's going to come, this is going to be around until Jesus comes back, because I don't think that you can prove exegetically that people speak, that people can or cannot speak in the tongues of angels. Like, I think exegetically, you can make a case either way. I mean, I think I can make a decent case uh, that you can speak languages uh, that, that tongue speech can be like a non-human language. I think I can make a decent exegetical case, but it's not airtight. And I just, I just, again, I just want us to admit when like to have a little bit of theological humility to say, you know what? Like I'm a hundred percent sure on this. Like I'm a hundred percent sure on justification by faith. That's a real thing. Um, but when it comes to, are there tongues of angels that people can speak in tongues in like, I, I'm not as confident about that as I am about justification by faith, but I, I think it's probably true. And, and I just think we need to be able to talk in those ways. And, and, and what the cessationist documentary does is it takes 
it, it either spouts falsehood or it says things that might be exegetically true and then communicates them with such ferocity that it's as if there literally is no other exegetical case to be made and they do not engage with the other side uh, with like the actual arguments. And so we, and we just see that again and again, but of the, uh, of the interpreters, the, the people in the, in this documentary, um, yes, I agree with you, Josh. I think that was a big blunder that he says, Paul's trying to get our eyes off of the gifts. Um, but apart from that, like he actually had the most careful exegesis <laughs> of anyone that I saw, or at least most of the people that I saw in the documentary. Um, most of it. Let me ask you this question, Michael, popular. about tongues of angels. I know this has nothing to do with our conversation today, and we're really responding to this Cessationist documentary. But I've thought about this a little bit. If human languages is a result of Babel, wouldn't the heavenly languages all be one language? Like. Why would there be many tongues of angels? Like it makes sense to me that there would only be one language. Yeah, I mean heaven. that's a that's a good you know question. I mean? I mean, all we can do is speculate. Although, although, and Josh, I've never thought about this, so this is coming to me live on air. Okay. Yeah, we're just we're pontificating but, with one another. So give us grace, yes. guys. We're pontificating. Okay. Deuteronomy thirty-two eight and nine, at the Tower of Babel, the nations were handed over to the sons of God, the Ben Elohim these angelic beings. Was there something language-wise that happened there in the heavenly realms? I mean, probably not, probably not, but I don't know. I'm pontificating. So are you saying that like maybe they were given like, hey, that, that sounds like that angel. You go you go submit to that one over there. Yeah. Um, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to go with, I don't believe for the record, I don't think that's true. But, uh, <laughs> I have no idea what the source of angelic tongues would be. Why wouldn't they all just speak one common tongue? But, you know, on that point, Josh, maybe there is just one angelic tongue. Who knows? Maybe everybody that's speaking in tongues is speaking in that one. I don't know, man. Guys, I, I mean, and this is, again, where we're going to say pontificate. I'm not going to teach this. I'm not going to preach this. Like, you know, we're, we're kind sure. of just rattling off stuff on, on air here. But there are so many dead languages, right? Like so many dead languages. I mean, until the Hun wiped out so many people. Like what's to say that God doesn't want to be worshipped in some language of some people group that is completely extinct, extinct you know, um, around the throne or to worship in every tribe, tongue, and language. Like it would make sense to me that God would give a supernatural gift to a people who, yeah, maybe it doesn't sound like a known language to you, but I, I can still conceptualize the idea that God would give known human languages to people that maybe Google Translate can't pick up on because we don't have a Rosetta Stone for some dead language out in Timbuktu that no one's ever heard of. So anyway, I, I would just say that like the idea that even in the Pentecostal space that there is a xenolalia and a glossolalia, a known human language and some kind of gibberish, I'm, I'm just denying the idea that there is any kind of tongues that is truly gibberish, that it's it's a language that we do not understand, whether that be a heavenly language or that be a known human language there's no interpreter is present for, or maybe some kind of extinct human language. I'm, I'm really open to any kind of possibility. I just really believe that the tongues has some kind of meaning to it because God understands it. And it's a spirit who's praying through us, uh, who's accomplishing that will. Miller, I thought I heard you maybe speak up there for a second. Let me toss it over to you. Yeah. Again, I just think the arguments against tongues and all of this fails to ever acknowledge what the purpose of it is. Um, if you could just answer the first question, why did God give the gift of tongues? Then how is the modern day practice of tongues undermining that purpose as it was given? 
And um, I, I think the, like I've said, said this already, but I think if you just look at first Corinthians 14, it's pretty clear that tongues is about prayer per, predominantly. It's about praying to God. And that to me seems like a really obvious thing because prayer is important to God and he's helping us to pray when we're not really good at it. And so, um, yeah, I, I think all of the other arguments kind of fall away when you understand the purpose of it. You you go, okay, that makes sense. Like God cares about people who pray. I think the problem we also have is is bad bad charismatic practice of tongues, uh, in the sense that many who speak in tongues act as though they are more spiritually superior because they got it and you don't. And so, or there's teachings like their prayers are more powerful because they speak in tongues. And I would just go, no, that that's it's not the language that you pray in that determines the power of your prayers, but rather the humility in your heart. And it makes sense to me that that God gives the gifts, uh, a gift of tongues in particular, to those who are weak, who need help to pray. And I'm I'm happy to say that's me. I'm glad God gave me that gift. Fantastic, guys! You ready to clear out a hospital? Yeah, let's, let's go for clear it. it out, man. Let's go, because you know, you bring up the gift of healing. First thing you gotta do is clear out a hospital. If somebody has the gift of miraculous healing, surely all he needs to do is to prove it. Assuming he went into a hospital and cleaned out a ward of patients, who are we to say that I know you guys think I'm prophetic. I've actually seen these videos before, so I saw that coming. It wasn't prophetic, I promise. He hasn't got that gift. Jesus doesn't owe you anything. Uh, he doesn't have to prove anything to you, nor does the Holy Spirit have to prove anything to you when it comes to a gift of healing. If you've got the gift of healing, then come to this children's hospital. If you've mm -hmm. got that kind of prove it to me attitude, that is not confidence in somebody's goodness and character. Um, that is pride at its very core. A freaking man. I, I love that they left that clip in there. There is nothing with that clip it's that is wrong. Not an, I, not an ounce of it that's yeah. wrong. Well, the weird Jesus. part is is the video after it. They 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 then got, have a guy saying, you know, if you've got this gift, why wouldn't it be so easy to go do it? I'm like, you didn't interact with what I said at all. I just said, Hey, if you're demanding a sign, you're no different than the Pharisees. That's pride. They wouldn't come to Jesus. They they expected Jesus to prove it to them. And because like, you know, the only sign I'm giving you is the signs of Jonah, right? He's going to he's going to die and yeah. get risen from the dead. And even then, guess what? They still didn't believe. You know, they got a guy in John 9 who's literally born blind, and everybody knows that this man has been born blind. Everybody knows that a noteworthy miracle took place. And yet they still find a way to, to make Jesus the bad guy. And, and I think this is often the case today. We have provided, I can't tell you how many examples of actual miracles. We go, hey, go read Craig Keener's book, two-volume work on miracles. And they're still going to dismiss it saying, oh, well, we believe that miracles happen. We just don't believe the gift of miraculous healings happen. And it's, again, they're, they're baking their definition into all the text when it comes to how those gifts operate. Sorry. Uh, I, I'm proud of what I said there. I just find it so ironic yeah. that they used it and never actually interacted with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. Like the, the prove it approach, what I would ask my cessationist brothers and sisters is like, how is what you're doing any different from what the Pharisees did to Jesus when they said, show me a sign? How is it one degree of difference? It's literally the exact same. 
And that's scary. That's a scary place to be in. And, you know, we get in all the like all the heat from the cessationists because like, oh, you guys are praying for miracles. And Jesus says, you know, you shouldn't ask for a sign like y'all are literally doing that. You're doing the thing that you tell us we're not supposed to. But when we pray for signs and wonders and miracles and healings, we're doing it in a different spirit than the one that's condemned in, say, Matthew 16, when the Pharisees demand a sign of Jesus. That's actually testing the Lord, like, prove yourself to me kind of deal. Uh, And that's what you're doing. But with the apostles in Acts chapter 4, they pray for signs and wonders, but they're not saying, prove yourself to me. They already have faith. They say, God, prove yourself to them. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness as you stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And God was so pleased with that prayer that the building where they were praying was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, which is what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they're praying, but they're praying for God to prove himself to them. That seems like a holy thing. So cessationists, rather than saying, prove yourself to me, an unholy thing, say, prove yourself to them, like, you know, like, or actually say to God, say to God, Lord, would you show yourself to them? You should actually pray for signs and wonders. That's the apostolic model. Uh, you know, here's another thing I would say, the whole clean out hospitals. And, um, you know, there's an interesting passage in Luke chapter five and verse, I think it's verse 17, if I remember right, where, uh, where it says, Jesus noticed that the power of the Lord was present to heal. Now, that's an interesting statement. It suggests that the power of the Lord wasn't always available to heal, that that's not always what the Lord was doing 24-7. If that was true of Jesus in his prolific healing ministry, would it not be true for his followers that there would be times when it's just the power of the Lord was not present to heal? Yes, he's he can heal anyone, anytime, but at times the power of the Lord is not present to heal. And I've been in situations where the power of the Lord was present to heal. And it's like, man, healings are just happening. Or I've seen this happen in prophetic where it was just like, man, people are getting their mail read one after another. There, there are just those times, same thing with salvations, where it's just like, it's like a visitation of the Lord. And so, and so that's one of the ways that I would respond is that, even in Jesus's ministry, there were times when the power of the Lord wasn't present to heal. Now, that's an implication of the verse. And for the person who would disagree with me and say, oh, well, you, you can't base your argument on implication. Like, that's not my only argument. I have 50 more arguments I've shared on the show. That's the one that most just came to mind just now. Uh, but either way, you would have to explain why does Luke include that parenthetical comment if not to explain that the power of the Lord isn't always available to heal. Come up with a better explanation for why Luke 5 says that. And uh, and so that would be my explanation is that healing isn't actually on demand in Jesus's yeah. ministry. Healing is not on demand in the apostles' ministry uh, or anywhere in the New Testament. Yeah, so we shouldn't be surprised that it's not on demand for us. Yeah, why, why pray and ask God to perform signs and wonders through the name of his servant Jesus? Why ask for that in Acts 5 if it was on demand? Um, and, and why give us that example as a prayer that we should pray ourselves if it was on demand? It seems like if Peter could heal at will, uh, then he should just be emptying hospitals left and right. So why why does he pray those words when he gathers with them? 
it seems yeah. counterproductive. Let's let's run through the New Testament verses, even though we've done it at nauseum, it's probably worth doing for the people who are just watching this video and none of our other videos. Uh, Paul had an infirmity in his flesh in Galatians chapter 4, 13 through 15. In 2 Corinthians, he had some kind of thorn in his flesh. Maybe you can say that was spiritual. Maybe you don't want to acknowledge that that was a physical infirmity. Sure, we'll let that one go. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, 25 through 30, Epaphroditus was left in Miletus sick. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, 23, Timothy was told to take some wine for his stomach. Uh, and in 2 Timothy 4, 20, uh, I think it was, uh, no, that was where Epaphroditus uh, was left in Miletus. Which ones is Philippians 2, 25 through 30? Which one am I remembering? Uh, Roundtree, I'm getting those verses switched. That one and 2 Timothy 4, 20. Uh, one was Trophimus and uh, Miletus sick, and the other one was Epaphroditus was on his deathbed, and then God raised so, him up. That was Philippians, was Epaphroditus, Philippian, right? Philippians 2 was, uh, I think, Epaphroditus almost died. Yeah. And then um, 2 Timothy 4.20, I think, was take a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent illnesses, but that could be 1 Timothy 5.23. Um, yeah, that's First Timothy five twenty three. Second yeah. Timothy four twenty is Trophimus and Miletus sick. I just got Trophimus the reference mixed Miletus, up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, all those verses would suggest that Paul wasn't able to heal in demand. Now, some people would argue, well, no, he had it at the beginning, but it tapered off towards the end. We've engaged with this argument, but, but again, at the very beginning of his ministry in Galatians, the earliest book he's ever written, um, the beginning of his ministry, he has some kind of infirmity when he comes and speaks to the church of Galatia, and they still received him. And at the very end of his ministry, where he's writing to Timothy, uh, there's illnesses as well. Yet, at the end of his ministry, we also see he heals an entire island of people in, in what, Acts 28, the whole island uh, of, of Malta gets completely healed supernaturally. Like, how, how is that happening if he doesn't have this gift? The only logical explanation is that this gift isn't on command, that at times God sovereignly heals and at times God sovereignly doesn't, and he uses human agents. Uh, additionally, uh, 1 Corinthians seems to speak to this in 1 Corinthians 12, when you see various gifts of healings, gifts is plural and healings is plural. Uh, it might suggest that there are different kinds of gifts of healing. Uh, again, it's just the way that the language is pointing and we're also pulling from the inferences of the New Testament. So you could ask the question, why didn't why didn't Paul and, uh, and Peter heal everyone? If they had the gift of healing, they should be able to do this on command. Well, do that of Jesus. Jesus goes to this pool of Bethesda and heals one guy. There's a bunch of people there that are sick. Why doesn't he heal everybody? Well, because Jesus doesn't owe you anything. Again, going back to what Miller said earlier, God is sovereign. He can do what he wants. Um, and, and to suggest that these gifts are not a co-labor and a co-partnership between God and man, I think is neglecting and ignoring the way that God talks about these gifts in the New Testament. Those are my thoughts. You guys have anything y'all want to add on this before we wrap this puppy up? I would just say we're going to be talking past one another, uh, every cessationist and every continuationist. If cessationists continue, uh, if they insist on defining a gift is an at will of the person who has that gift on command gift, um, because no continuationist believes that they're already starting with a different definition of a gift of healing. At least start there. Talk about those differences and make your argument that your your definition of the gift of healing is the actual definition in scripture as best as you can. The, the problem is they never do that. They just assume that that definition is right. And then they go from there to make their arguments. Um, and so we would, we would start with your premise. Your premise is already faulty. 
Guys, I think this is a good wrap, a good bow on the cessationist documentary. Uh, you know, Les, uh, Tim, we've invited you, I think, every episode to come on to talk with us. You're still invited. We welcome you to come on the show and chat through the cessationist documentary. While you publish what you publish, we're going to push back. We're going we're gonna to argue with you on air. But, man, if you're interested in engaging with the arguments, you publish the documentary. Uh, we'd love to chat with you about it. Anyway, uh, we love our cessationist brothers. If you're out there and you're watching this, we hope that you can kind of man, be pushed into what I would consider maybe a more historic Christianity, be pushed into what I would consider certainly a more biblical approach to Christianity. Hopefully you're watching this and we're able to push you out of just the traditions of men that nullify God's word and, uh, man, are able to come into obedience with the scriptures that tell us to not despise prophecy, not to forbid the speaking in tongues, uh, but to you know, earnestly uh, desire spiritual gifts and especially that we would prophesy. So hopefully uh, this series has been helpful to you. And if you want to have some of the research and study notes that we have, you can always subscribe to the newsletter that can be found in the description of the video for more. Uh, Roundtree, I don't think I gave you a chance to sign off, man. Do you, do you got anything you want to say uh, before we roll off of this beautiful no. bean footage? No, dude. Uh, I think y'all said it well, man. I think y'all said it well. Uh, I think that's uh, a good bow for the cessationist documentary. So, uh, yeah, it's time to talk about some other stuff. But uh, we enjoyed talking through the uh, the cessationist. If you haven't watched all the videos, go back and check out all the videos. And hit the link in the description because you can sign up for our newsletter. And when you sign up, Josh, does it work this way? If you sign up for the newsletter, do you automatically get access to our cessationist documentary show notes, at least for those? Correct. Okay. All right. So then you get some of our research on uh, responding to the cessationist documentary. So make sure you do that and hit that like, man, dude, this is like the lowest liked video I've ever seen. It only has four likes. Y'all help us out here. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I'm sure by the time most people watch this, have you're, more, but... you're, you need to refresh your page, my guy. There's definitely, oh I, need to, oh, I need to refresh my page. Okay. Well, let's, let's see how many, how many, do, oh, 28 likes. Well, never mind. Uh, well guys, thanks so much. And, uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, hit that subscribe button and have a great week. I should have just like picked on you, but like counting is hard. <laughs> want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.